Hello, and thanks for listening to Verse by Verse with Clinton DeFrance. What was the greatest sermon ever preached? Find out next as we study Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 36. We're reading today in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 36. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken." Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You've made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. In our last study, we learned about the event on the day of Pentecost after the resurrection of Jesus called the baptism in the Holy Spirit. We considered the sensory elements of this event that made it a sign, and we heard Peter's explanation from the writings of Joel the prophet connecting this event and the judgment of God against Israel, which would occur 40 years later as the two earthly proofs that Jesus the Messiah had received his kingdom from God and was ruling from heaven, offering redemption to whoever on earth will trust in him and obey his commandments. Immediately after citing the Joel prophecy, Peter launches into a sermon about the life and work of Jesus and how his death and resurrection fulfilled the expectations of Old Testament prophecy and the eternal purpose of God. This has many times been called the greatest sermon ever preached. 
Now, some people might challenge that accolade since Jesus was not the preacher, and it might seem impossible that the greatest sermon was not preached by the greatest preacher. But I think the 19th century Christian evangelist W.J. Lamon offered a compelling defense for the supremacy of this sermon over all others when he pointed out that this sermon was the announcement of what every sermon preached before anticipated, even those preached by the Lord himself, and of what every sermon preached since has celebrated. John the Immerser preached great sermons. Jesus even said in Luke chapter 7 and verse 28, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he followed that thrilling compliment with a caveat. He who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Brother H.C. Booth, the great-grandfather of Brother Paul Nichols, wrote in 1883 and said this, It cannot be in holiness that the least in the kingdom of heaven or the church is greater than John, for we have no evidence that anyone was more devoted to God than him. It must have been in the difference of their ministries. The prophets prophesied the coming of Christ. John showed that Christ was among them, but the preachers of the gospel, beginning with Peter in Acts 2, showed that Christ had suffered and had arisen from the grave and had brought life and immortality to light. In fact, Jesus said the same thing about the ministry of the apostles compared even to his own. In John 14 and verse 12, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do will he do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. When Jesus said, I go to my Father, he spoke of completing his earthly mission, and the greater works that would be done by the disciples would be that earthly proclamation of its completion to the sinful population of the earth. So as Brother Lamon observed, Peter's sermon was therefore to all preceding preachers an impossibility. To the Savior himself, it would have been an anachronism. Its repetition or its equal is likewise an impossibility to all succeeding preachers, for the occasion, the inspiration, and the results of Pentecost can never be duplicated. Peter stood that day with the keys of the kingdom of heaven— to open the doors of God's house and announce the terms of entrance and enjoyment of the riches of God's grace. But it began with a message about Jesus himself. Acts 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, literally, Jesus the Nazarene. A man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Peter has opened his sermon by identifying Jesus as a Nazarene, that is, by highlighting his lowliness and the drastic sense in which he defied the Jewish expectations of the Messiah. But he appeals to the recent and renowned history of Jesus' ministry as evidence that he was a man sent from God and a teacher sent by him. 
The Gospels tell us on several occasions that news and reports had spread about Jesus, not only throughout the whole land of Palestine, including into areas he never traveled, but in fact it had reached out beyond into the land of the Gentiles. And those who knew the true God knew that one who worked real miracles was being attested. The NASB footnote says exhibited or accredited. Benjamin Boothroyd's translation says manifested. Dr. Wynn says pointed out. Granville Penn says he was being marked out by God. Nicodemus admitted to Jesus that the Pharisees and the rulers of the Jews understood the connection between miracles and divine approval. In John chapter 3 and verse 2, he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher sent from God, for no one can do these signs. One of the same words for supernatural works Peter uses here. No one can do these signs that you are doing unless God is with him. The miracles of Christ did not only amaze a few devotees and sycophants blinded by love for Jesus. They were real, mighty wonders that even left the enemies of Jesus with no excuse not to believe in him, according to John 15, verses 22 through 24. And so Peter affirms that the crowd present knows the truth of what he says. He continues in verse 23, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. There's a lot going on in these words, and they're not easy to process. Peter explains that God was at work before, in, and after the works of those lawless, sinful, wicked hands that crucified Jesus. The death of Jesus Christ was a murder of an innocent man. When we read the gospel accounts, it's difficult not to be overwhelmed with righteous indignation toward all of the parties involved, from the bloodthirsty Jewish mob driven by envy and bitterness to demand his death, to the cowardly Roman governor, who refused to advocate for one he admitted was an innocent man, but rather handed him over to be brutalized and executed in one of the most severe and torturous ways known in human history. In fact, some translations render the phrase lawless hands as the hands of godless men and understand it as a figure of speech for the Gentiles, literally being hands without law, so as to indict both the Jews and the Gentiles in the death of Jesus. Well, Peter doesn't deny any of this. He affirms that humans, in fact, many in his audience that day, murdered Jesus. But when he says that Jesus was delivered to this fate, he does not ascribe that to the men who betrayed or killed him. Jesus himself had preached to the apostles on several occasions that he was going to give his life for his people. And that's something the apostles affirm over and again in their writings. In John chapter 10, verses 17 through 18, Jesus said, Therefore, my Father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. And yet here in this sermon, Peter does not look at Jesus or the Jews or the Romans 
as the primary agents of the Lord's death, he says that God was behind the whole thing and that it happened by his determined purpose and foreknowledge. One paraphrase says, it was resolved by God before it took place. Now, it is possible to understand these statements to simply mean that God knew and spoke through the prophets about the death of Jesus before it happened. That's certainly true. The apostles and evangelists frequently cite Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, and other Old Testament passages as predictions of the sufferings of Jesus. And Jesus said that what he endured on Calvary fulfilled the sum message of the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, Luke 24, verses 44 through 48. But the phrase determined purpose implies that God more than knew about it. In some way, this was a part of his plan, and he orchestrated it. In this place, Peter doesn't explain what the purpose was. He certainly doesn't explain the mysterious providential functions of God. He simply asserts it, because it seems that in this sermon, Peter's focus was not so much on the death of Christ, but what happened afterward, of which God was the essential agent. He informs that the same God who brought Jesus down into the grave brought him back out again. God raised Jesus up. Peter says in verse 24, having loosed the pains of death. This is an interesting expression. The pains of death is translated the bonds of death in some versions. And in the Latin translation, it is the sorrows of the netherworld. But the word pains literally means birth pangs. And A.T. Robertson wrote that early Christian writers interpreted the resurrection of Christ as a birth out of the realm of the dead and took these words to mean that by God's power, Jesus burst free from death like a newborn baby coming into the world. The language can be taken just as correctly to mean that death was like a chain or a cord which ties most people down to the grave, but it was loosened by God in the case of Jesus because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Why was it impossible for Jesus to be held or to be overcome by death? Surely because of his divine nature, because he had never done anything deserving of death, but also, as Peter goes on to say, because according to the same determined purpose and foreknowledge that took him to the cross, he was destined to rise for further work in God's plan. So Peter continues in verse 25, For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. This is a quotation from the Greek translation of Psalm 16. This psalm describes the blessed estate of a righteous person who trusts in God and honors him and his people over all worldly allurements. Now, the psalm is actually written from the perspective of David and other faithful Israelites, and David affirms his own confidence in the Lord 
that because of God, his flesh dwells in safety and rests in hope at all times in his life, even when it goes down into the ground and his soul is swallowed up by Sheol, as the Hebrews called death. They often pictured Sheol as a deep black pit or the open jaws of a huge, terrible beast. And you look down into the emptiness and the void of that great abyss and what's down there. It's a great mystery. Souls are tumbling into it. And where will they go? And how could they ever come out again? Well, here we have the Greek word Hades, which referred to the netherworld or the realm of departed spirits, both good and evil. In Psalm 16, David confidently says that his flesh and his spirit have hope, even in the face of death, that going down into the pit is not going to be his final end. Whatever it is that's down there, uh, he's not going to face it as the terminus of his existence, but God will make known to him the ways of life and bring him through death so that he might enjoy God's presence forever. In Psalm 16 and verse 10, David expresses that his own hope of a resurrection and triumph over death was based on the fact that God will bring his Holy One through death and restore him to life. David was not the Holy One. This was a title of the Messiah or the Christ. It was known on earth and in other worlds as well. We find it as the title most often used by demons and evil spirits when addressing Jesus, as in Mark chapter 1, verse 24. Because God would not leave the Messiah in the grave, David was confident that God will not leave any of the righteous who trust in him in the grave either. And Peter establishes this interpretation in verse 29. Men and brethren... Let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Unlike with Jesus, men could go to the place where David's body was interred and find his ancient bones still there. In fact, the tomb of David was opened once before the time of Peter, and once again after it by kings who pillaged it for its treasures. We're unsure which of the caves near Jerusalem was actually the tomb of Jesus now? There's a few different traditions, but they knew. They were so close to the time. They had been there. They had looked inside. And ever since three days after his death, no man denied that the tomb of Jesus was empty. No one claimed that he could produce a body, as Peter says they could with David. Therefore, verse 30 continues, being a prophet... And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Peter says two important things here. First, he tells us that David made this prophecy not only from a revelation of the Spirit, but also from faith and the promise of God. God declared to David and made a covenant with him in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12-16. through 16. Through the prophet Nathan, God said, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, 
I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. David reflected on this promise often. In Psalm 89, verses 3 through 4, he wrote God's words, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David, your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. And in Psalm 132, verse 11, David penned the words to which Peter alludes directly, the Lord is sworn in truth to David, he will not turn from it. I will sit upon your throne the fruit of your body. Because of these promises, David knew that death would not conquer his promised son as it does other men, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption, verse 31. I think it's important to explain what Peter means here. We should not push this to mean that the crucified body underwent no rigor mortis, or any of the natural processes of decay that immediately follow death. Jesus was dead. He was physically deceased. And the soldiers tested it and found that that was true. The point that Peter is making here, the point that the prediction of Psalm 16 is making, is that God did not leave Jesus' body in the grave long enough for it to rot away. Before there could be any doubt or any question as to whether the empty tomb and the risen body really belonged to Jesus, God raised him up, and Peter adds, of which we are all witnesses. Verse 33, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. So Peter tells us that the throne of David, that Christ was raised up from the dead to receive, was not a physical seat in Jerusalem, but the heavenly antitype, the divine authority of God to rule over the Lord's redeemed people and to hold all authority in heaven and on earth. Peter reminds us that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was God's great sign that this had transpired and then informs that just as with the death and resurrection of Christ, the ascension and coronation in heaven were all a part of God's eternal plan. For David did not ascend into the heavens. Just as David's physical remains were still entombed near Jerusalem, his soul was at that moment still in the waiting place of Hades. But he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, You remember how Jesus used this passage to prove that he was both the son of David and the son of God. He was David's promised heir, but David in the spirit called him Lord. And he heard by the ear of prophecy, God saying to Jesus, set at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is the divine announcement of the inauguration of Messiah's kingdom, which shall endure and spread and increase until God has put all enemies under his feet and the last enemy being death itself, when those who are Christ's will share in his glorious resurrection at his return, 1 Corinthians 15, 22 through 29. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly 
that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now we surely see why this sermon, bold, brilliant, and blessed, was the greatest sermon ever preached. It announced in the most thrilling and undeniable terms that Christ died for us, that God raised him up, and that he lives forevermore, that he ascended into heaven, that he took captive the dark powers of sin and made a spectacle of them and gave gifts to men from his throne, from which he will rule in righteousness and grace over all that believe in him until the consummation of all things. No wonder they call it the gospel. Good news, good news, the kingdom of God is here. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the scriptures together. Verse by Verse is brought to you by the 11th Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It is part of the Growing Biblical Studies program of Tulsa. To learn more, visit our website, bspoftulsa.com. When we walk with the Lord, when we walk with the Lord, in the light of His Word, in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way, sheds on our way, while we do His good will, while we do His good will, He abides with us still, He abides with us still, and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and do trust and